Uh, if you will, uh, turn with me to Luke 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, so we'll see in verses 1 through 4, and we're, we're going to be reading the Lord's Prayer. Um, now, throughout the history of the church, the Lord's Prayer has been recited by Christians gathered for worship. I mean, it's, it's one of the most well-known and popular parts of Scripture. And, you know, this passage uh, in Luke, as well as Matthew 6, 9 through 13, where the prayer is also recorded, um, really they're, they're two of the first passages that most believers memorize, uh, and the prayer itself has been an essential part of Christian piety since it was first given to the church by Jesus. You know, we, we see the major creeds, confessions, and catechisms of the church all devote a great deal of time to it because it's really important. You know, millions of hours of intense study have been devoted to these verses by centuries of believers. And, you know, a lot of times we can even see the Lord's Prayer come up in, in secular culture. You know, I grew up um, up north, uh, and I remember growing up in Pennsylvania, and before, like, all of our, like, big football games, uh, my, my coach, Tony Augustinelli, is not a believer, but I guess he was really superstitious. So if we had a big game, we would all have to get together, and we would all say the Lord's Prayer because, you know, it's like, if we say that, we're going to win. We didn't. But, but that, you know, in his head, you know, we would say that, and then he would go and curse up a storm. And it was like, what, what is, what are we doing? But, you know, the, we would say it because it was like that was, you know, Everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. That's, that, it's big. Even in secular culture, a lot of times, you know, people are familiar with it. You know, the Lord's Prayer, it provides Jesus' disciples with the model structure of prayer. And here, we get, you know, who God is that we're praying to, and then we get five petitions as well. Um, you know, the first part, it lays out its vertical dimensions. You know, our prayer it needs to begin with the understanding that God is our dearest Father. You know, that, that, that it's personal, that we, you know, our, our relationship with the Lord, you know, is, it's real and that it is personal. And from there, it lays out all of the groundwork, you know, for, for what comes. You know, sticking with that vertical, you know, we're going to see two requests that, foc uh, that focus on God. You know, one, hallowed be your name as Father, and then your kingdom come. And this is a prayer for the advent of the final kingdom and a commitment to kingdom living now, to lives of continual repentance and obedience. And following those verses, uh, of those vertical dimensions comes our horizontal structure of prayer. You know, prayer for those things that Christ's disciples need, namely, you know, bread, forgiveness, and strength when facing temptation. And so put together... You know, we have the multidimensional prayer that we see here in Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. So let's go ahead and read that. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. 
Dear God, as we, as we open your word this morning, God, as we, as we read you know, this, this structure, this model structure for prayer um, that, that you gave to the disciples, God, we pray that you just open that up to us this morning. God, help us to see you know, in prayer what you were saying um, to the disciples back when this was recorded, uh, when, when Jesus spoke these words. God, and we pray that you help us to, to see what you are saying to us today. God, help us to be able to apply this passage in our prayer lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this prayer has been called the Lord's Prayer for you know, almost 2,000 years. And, it, and it's kind of funny because, you know, if we really wanted to be fully accurate um, in, you know, in what this prayer was, we, would, we really would call it the disciples' prayer. You know, in verse 1, the disciples wanted a distinctive prayer. They said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. And Jesus granted their request. You know, the prayer's five petitions, you know, they're, they're perfect for, for each and every disciple of Christ who has ever lived. You know, these, these five petitions apply to, to each and every one of us. You know, as we look at prayer in Luke 11, you know, we do see that this prayer is a little bit different than the one in Matthew's gospel. You know, perhaps when, we were, when I was reading it, you might have been like, wait, aren't, you know, it's normally when we say it, it has like all these flows and it's like this one's a little bit different. Those familiar rhythms and, and comfortable cadences of prayer in Matthew 6, you know, those aren't found here. You know, your kingdom come is not followed by your will be done. And lead us not into temptation is not followed by deliver us from evil. So, you know, what, what do we make of that? Well, what we make of it is that Jesus clearly taught his disciples about prayer more than once. And, you know, we see that prayer is important. It's something worth being taught, you know, more than once. But the structure in Luke and Matthew, are, are they're the same. You know, and the lines from Matthew are cl pretty clearly implied in Luke's shorter form. You know, if we are to pray, your kingdom come, well, then we're implying that God's will be done. If we pray, lead us not into temptation, then we're implying a desire for deliverance from temptation. And so it's important that we see from Luke and Matthew that Jesus desired to teach a pattern for prayer rather than a rigid insistence on the exact form. You know, as we look to the prayer, Jesus' opening word of instruction was, to say the least, it was, it was explosive. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now, when we look at this in, in English, when we read this, we're like, well, what, really, what's explosive about that? That sounds pretty normal. When they pray, begin by saying, Father. But what we'll see here is, you know, this is extremely, extremely personal. You know, the first thing that we see, you know, is that we pray to God personally. You know, that God should be personally addressed as Father. And again, it may, it may not seem odd to us today, but in Jesus' day, this was huge. This was different. You know, the writers of the Old Testament believed in the fatherhood of God, but they saw it mainly in terms of a sovereign creator father to whom they owed their existence. In fact, you know, God is only referred to as father 14 times in the Old Testament, and even then, it's, it's rather impersonal. You know, the Jews were so focused on the sovereignty and the transcendence of God that they were really careful to never repeat his covenant name. 
You know, they invented the word Jehovah, which was a combination of two separate names of God to use instead. You know, that distance from God was well guarded. But when Jesus came onto the scene, he addressed God only as Father. All of his prayers address God as Father. And the Gospels record his using Father more than 60 times in reference to God. I mean, nobody in the entire history of Israel prayed like Jesus. Nobody. This was different. This was unique. But there's more. Because the word that Jesus used for Father, it wasn't a formal word. This was... This was a common Aramaic word that a child would use to to address his father. And the word was Abba. this, This is the same word that Jesus used to address his earthly father, Joseph. It was a super common word. But it was never used for God under any circumstances. You know, the best the best rendering of this word into the English language is to say, dearest father. We are to pray, Father, dearest Father. And this is to be foundational, uh, a foundational awareness in all of our prayers. So I'm asked, you know, and it's important that we ask ourselves, does this awareness fuel our prayer lives? Is, Is a sense of God's intimate fatherhood profound and growing in our souls? Sincerely addressing God as Abba is not only an indication of spiritual health, but it's also a mark of the authenticity of our faith. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15-16 says the same thing, But if you have received the spirit of, adoptions as son, uh, as adopt, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. True believers are propelled to say this. You know, it's like with Brooklyn, you know, my three-year-old. You know, she has uh, a bunk bed at home. And we got it from Ikea, and it's like she has this, it's, there's no bed on the bottom, so she has this like play area, and it kind of acts like a tent, and she has these stairs that you climb up into her bed, and she'll be up there, and I'll go in, and I'll talk to her, and just unannounced, she'll just jump, and it terrifies me. Or she'll just be leaned up on the edge and just lean off. You know, she doesn't jump because she's like, I really want to break my leg. She jumps because she knows I'm going to catch her. She doesn't announce it because she's overly confident that I am going to catch her. You know, the, the, the thought, the possibility does not enter her mind that I would ever drop her. This is the way that it is with our Heavenly Father. He gives us a great sense of security and confidence. He assures us that we belong to Him and that He is never going to forget us and He is never going to abandon us. If we jump to him, he'll catch us. In, 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 in the midst of this upward rush of God as Father, we see our first petition in prayer. But understanding God as Father is foundational for everything that's going to come. Our first petition that we see is in verse, uh, verse 2. We pray 
for God's name. We pray, hallowed be your name. You know, names have meanings, especially back then. You know, when, you know, when we named Brooklyn, when we named, um, you know, in like a little more than a week, when Melody's coming, you know, we didn't sit there and think like, all right, what is the definition of each of these names before we name them? Some people do. But back in that day, names had meanings. It was important. For the Jews, names were considered to indicate character. And this especially applied to the name of God. And so, what name is prominent in the Lord's Prayer? Abba, Father, hallowed be your name. This is revolutionary. You know, certainly God's name as Creator, Elohim, and His covenant name, Jehovah, as well as many other names are to be hallowed. But the emphasis here is on His name as Father. But what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, the word means to set apart as holy. And so, hallowed means, may, you're, may you be given that unique reverence that your character and nature as Father demand. You know, we too should pray that, that God's name as our Father is hallowed. And so if we're to pray that, well then, well then how do we apply that? How, how do we hallow God's name today? Well, Jesus is our great example here. You know, at the cross, uh, as the cross drew near, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And he knew what that meant in terms of his own commitment. It meant dying for our sins. And so we hallow God's name, one, with our lips, both privately and publicly. You know, he is our Father. His name is never to be misused, as the third commandment so specifically insists. We must revere our Father with our lips. And this, in turn, elevates and substantiates our love for him. You know, verbal reverence to God's name is of greatest importance for our souls and for his glory. And so, one, yeah, we, we hallow God's name with our lips. And two, we also hallow God's name by our actions. As we live lives that show that we don't just say that we honor our Heavenly Father, but that we actually back that up, that we actually do honor our Heavenly Father. And so the second and the concluding vertical petition here in this prayer is your kingdom come. We pray anticipating God's kingdom. The tense of the verb come here refers to a decisive time in the future when the kingdom will come once and for all, an event that will only happen once. This is the second advent of Christ when he will return, he will judge the world, and he will set up his eternal kingdom. The kingdom's coming is to be a centerpiece in every disciple's prayers today the center of this present life because Jesus brought the kingdom with him. And so we have a twofold emphasis here. One, it is a prayer that God's rule and reign would continually advance in people's hearts and lives you know, until the day that Jesus returns and he brings the kingdom in perfect fullness. Two, it also refers to the future consummation of the kingdom already realized in part by Jesus' coming. And when we see this, 
the kingdom becomes a really personal thing for several reasons. You know, first, although our will wants to go its own way, being in the kingdom means that our will is redirected to God's will. You know, to pray, your kingdom come, is to repent and to live a life characterized by obedience. Second, this prayer demands commitment. You know, the kingdom of God is for those who have decided to follow him and not to, to keep longingly looking back. To pray your kingdom come is to commit ourselves to continue following him. And third, the kingdom is to be pursued above all else. To pray your kingdom come and truly pray that prayer is to pursue it. It's here that we move from those vertical dimensions of prayer now into the horizontal in verse 3 where we see that we pray for God's provision. The initial petition appears simple enough. You know, give us each day our daily bread. You know, it's, it's one of those things, again, the Lord's Prayer is, we, we, growing up, we hear it all the time. It's something that can be really familiar to us, but it, every piece here is so important. You know, it's interesting that in all of Greek literature, the word for daily appears two times. This, this particular word for daily. It's here, and it is in Matthew's version of the prayer. The scholars tell us that the meaning of the word is tomorrow, which would make the literal reading, our bread of tomorrow, give us today. So, so what does that mean? Well, this, this understanding includes multiple facets here. One, it includes our physical needs. And two, it includes our ultimate spiritual needs. As to the physical, um, prayed in the morning, this is a prayer for the needs of the day. And prayed in the evening, it's a prayer for the needs of the next day. So give us each day our bread of tomorrow. It's a prayer of God. We pray that you meet our daily physical needs. But by praying for tomorrow's bread, it also requests that God meet our needs with the bread of the ultimate tomorrow. You know, the bread of eternity. It's significant that the initial thing that Christ instructs us to pray for when we pray for ourselves is our daily bread, our material needs. And one of the sweetest realities of our prayer life is that God cares about the simple day-to-day needs of life. Have you ever thought about that? It's like our our simple day-to-day needs, God wants us to bring those to him. He wants us to pray to him about our, our, our daily needs. I feel like, it, for me at least, it, it can be so easy to be like, there are so many people in this world that have so many really big, really major things going on. That have some really important prayers to God. Like, does God really want me to just bring to him, like, God, I'm suffering with this, this small thing. Or, you know, just our, our, my day-to-day stuff. It's like, it's, it's God. Doesn't he, have, doesn't he have bigger things? God wants us to bring our daily needs to him. We we are not too small for God to care about us. You know what Christ is saying here? It's immensely freeing. We don't have to get to this insanely high place in our spirituality before we can offer requests to God. It's not like, oh no, you know, you've got to be a church member for 10 years before you can offer these type of prayers. You've You've got to put in your time. It's not like that at all. 
It's not like, oh, no, you need to do this and that in the service projects, and then you can be important enough for me to hear your prayer. No. We are instructed not just to bring only the big things to God. It's not like this is a request and we're like, all right, we'll see if this is important enough for, for God to hear your prayer. But praise God that we can bring our everyday request to him, that he desires us to bring our everyday request to him. And God meets us where we're at, and there we see a glimpse of his loving greatness. When we come to our Father with everyday needs, even the so-called little things, we are glorifying him. Jesus is telling us, whether rich or poor, that God wants us to depend on him daily. He wants us to pray for our daily material needs, and he wants us to thank him daily. But as I said, this bread of tomorrow is also a request for the spiritual bread of the future, uh, the future eternal state. The petition literally reads, give us this day our bread for tomorrow, pointing to this. And to further this, the three preceding petitions of the Lord's Prayer, combining Matthew and Luke, all ultimately refer to the final eternal state, when God's name is once and for all hallowed, when his kingdom comes and his will is perpetually done. And therefore, it follows that the bread of tomorrow is also eternal. And Jesus used only one symbol to describe the eternal state for believers, and he used it many times. This was a great and joyous feast. Surely this is where the bread of heaven will be served. And so in three ways, we see that when Jesus bids us to pray for the bread of tomorrow, he is inviting us to pray for the bread of eternity today. In verse 4, we now move on to the next petition. We pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And the, the, the parallel phrase in Matthew's version essentially says the same thing. Forgive, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. This suggests that forgiveness must be fulfilled as a condition before we can ask God for forgiveness. And Luke's use of the present tense expresses a continual spirit of forgiveness in the hearts that ask God for forgiveness. You know, a heart that asks for God's forgiveness is going to have to be a heart that has forgiven and continues to forgive. Charles Spurgeon, he said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. And think about it. If we, if we pray, God, forgive us of our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, but we don't have a forgiving heart, well, what are we asking for? Well, what we're asking for if we do that is we would be asking for God to not forgive us. If we say, God, forgive us as I forgive others, but I don't forgive... We'd be asking for him not to. It's like when I was, when I was in college, and uh, I would take, I know I, I talk about Dr. Brabin a lot. Um, I took a lot of his classes. But in Dr. Brabin's class, before we would have any exam, he would, he would say, I have prayed for each and every one of you before this exam. And a lot of times people that didn't take him were always like, well, that's kind of cool. And then he, would, then he would finish what he was saying. And he would say, I, I have prayed for each and every one of you to get the grade that corresponds with the preparation you put in. And then people are always like, oh, whatever. And it's like, you know, because they didn't prepare. Um, 
And, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I kept thinking back to that as I got to this part. Because if we're saying, God, forgive me as I have forgiven others, but I have no desire to forgive others. I don't forgive others in my life. Well, do I really want God to forgive me as I forgave others? You know, if, if I don't prepare for the test, you know, I'm going to fail. If, if, if Dr. Brabin's prayer comes true. If I don't forgive and I'm praying for God to forgive me as I have forgiven others, well, then essentially I'm asking to not be forgiven. And so it is really important that when we see this verse that we understand that true believers forgive and true believers are forgiving. But we also know we are all humans. And I'm sure each and every one of you knows that forgiving does not come easily. Forgiving does not come naturally to us. We are, we're sinners. And it's hard to maintain a forgiving spirit. But that struggle is evidence of God's work in our hearts because otherwise we would just give in to the hatred in our heart. The warning here is for those who claim Christ but don't forgive and have no desire to. You know, God is so good in putting it this way. You know, it requires no elaborate reasoning process to, to determine where we are. It doesn't require us to have any special knowledge. It just requires honesty. Is God's grace at work in your heart? This petition of the Lord's Prayer, it's tough. But it's also glorious. It is gracious. It's full of grace. It, it cuts through all of the evangelical jargon, and it monitors our spiritual health. Are we healthy, forgiving people? It's something that we all need to ask ourselves and not just like once and move on from it. We need to be continually asking ourselves of this because it's so easy to not be. And think about it. Do you, you know, do you need to forgive your spouse? Have you been unwilling to forgive family or, or friends? Have you forgiven your employer who, who wronged you? Do you have a grudge against your last church, its, it's pastor or, or its elders? Well, of course, the list could go on and on, but let me encourage you. Forgive today. We are called to forgive, and believers, remember. Remember the forgiveness that we have received. As we come to the end of our text today, we see our final petition. We pray for strength to resist temptation. You know, it's really important that we don't take this verse as God tempts us or uh, that we take this verse that praying removes every temptation from us. And if, you're still feel, if you pray and you still feel temptation, then you're just not doing it good enough or, or you don't mean it. It's really important that we don't take either of those two meanings from this. You know, all, all of life is full of temptation. And the Greek word here used, um, it speaks of temptation that if yielded to will lead us into sin. You know, temptation itself is good for us, and, and it molded the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, his ministry began with his temptations in the wilderness as Satan came at him with a subtly contrived psycho-spiritual attack. And Jesus withstood it all. Um, and with those temptations conquered, he went on to live a peerless life. And then some three and a half years later, towards the end of his life, he again triumphed over temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane when he conquered the impulse to flee from the cross. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.10 bears testimony to the molding effect of, of these and other sufferings when he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Think about it. If, if temptations helped shape the life and ministry of Christ, then how much more will they shape our lives? How much more will they do for us? You know, temptations, when resisted, they, they develop our moral character. Temptations, when conquered, they knit the fibers of our souls into muscular cords. You know, this is why the Scriptures urge the long view. As James 1, 2 through 3 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Jesus' recommended prayer regarding temptation is not that we are never going to experience temptation of any kind ever. Temptations and trials and testing are necessary for the health of our souls. And so the proper prayer asks God to deliver us from overpowering temptations, recognizing that we are liable to fold under such enticement and assault. Here is a humble awareness of our weakness. And the very best person, the best person on earth, according to earthly standards, at their best is vulnerable and stumbles easily apart from God's gracious provision of strength. And we are most vulnerable when we think that we are past a certain temptation. And it's like, I'm past that. I'm not going to be tempted by that anymore. I'm never going to give into that again. We are never more vulnerable when we are at that point. When we put that guard down. And when we are not asking for God for strength to resist those temptations. The strongest believers are sure that they cannot stand apart from the grace of God. You know, the the strongest believers are those who doubt their ability to withstand temptation on their own. Those who plead, lead us not into temptation that is beyond our capacity to withstand. And here we have it. The disciples' prayer begins with a vertical rush that focuses on the miracle of divine paternity. It cries out for God's name, Abba, to be hallowed in its amazing, enticing sweetness. It's a prayer, too, for the Father's kingdom to come. But we're not to pray uh, fatalistically or, or passively, but we are to align our whole life under Christ's kingdom rule. Now, unlike uh, omnipotence or omniscience, words that you know, a lot of times you know, you know, can have a very, very technical feel to them, Abba calls us to most intimate terms with God. There's nothing like this in any of the world's religions. You know, Jesus' call to address God as dearest Father, it abounds with relationship, with intimacy, with security. It is too sweet to be properly described. Today, do you know God as Abba, Father? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You know, if you don't this morning, let me encourage you, don't wait. You know, Jesus has come. He took on flesh, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect 
life. He never sinned in thought, in word, in deed. Utterly sinless. He died on the cross for our sins. He paid not only the physical price of dying uh, uh, the most brutal and the most embarrassing death that they had, but he took on the full wrath of God, took on the full weight of our sin when he was utterly sinless. And he rose from the grave as only God could. And when we repent and, and we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, we are saved. We, are, we receive adoptions as sons. And so if you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior today, let me encourage you, do not wait. Repent and trust in him as Lord and Savior. We have the privilege to hallow God's name in this world. If his nature as Abba drenches our everyday life, we will embody God's good news to an orphaned world. Disciples of Christ naturally plead for the kingdom where all will be at rest under his fathership. But our prayers are not hollow because we make a habit of repenting and living under the Father's will now. Joyous kingdom living. With the vertical petitions, we also have the horizontal. You know, how, what, what should the horizontal structure of our prayer lives be? Jesus made it clear. He wants his disciples to consciously depend upon him for our most basic needs. No need is too mundane or too small. He glorifies himself in supplying what we need. But there's more because that bread of tomorrow also refers to Christ himself. The bread that we can feast on forever. And further, having been forgiven by Christ, let us be forgiving people who daily seek the forgiveness of Christ. That's a call for daily examination, for daily confession, and for daily petition. And also let us humbly pray that the Father will lead us away from any temptation that is too much for us. Let us embrace this testing because it builds the fiber of our souls. But let us plead for deliverance from temptations that would prevail. This is our pattern. First, pray for God's kingdom, and then for our needs. This pattern keeps us from wandering all over the place in prayer or, or simply by just praying on the same things. This structure for prayer, it gives us direction. It helps us as we grow in our walk with the Lord and as we become disciples who make disciples. You know, as, as we go uh, to the Lord in prayer now, you know, if you would like to respond to the service, you know, if you would like to you know, place your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or if you just have if questions about the service or you know, questions about Jesus in general, you know, we would love to talk to you. you know, we would love nothing more than to answer those questions, to talk to you about salvation in Jesus. And so let me encourage you, you know, if that's you today, find myself, find Pastor Michael, find Pastor Ben after the service. We, again, we would love to talk to you. Or if you're saying, oh, I'm with you on the live stream or, or whatever, you want to email us, email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. But please do, because we would love to talk to you about these things, because they're important. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you that we can come to you as Father. God, that we can have a deep and a personal relationship with you. God, not that you're just 
a great God that is big and far away and that we can't come to you, but God, that we can. God, that you are our Abba Father. And God, we pray that you help us to hallow, hallow your name. God, help us in our lives to set your name apart as holy. And we pray that we give your name the reverence that your character and your nature as Father demand. That we hallow your name with our lips, with how we speak about you. And God, with our actions, that we back it up in our lives. And we pray that you help us with everything that goes on in our lives to truly anticipate your kingdom. God, help us to live like we are anticipating your kingdom. And we pray that you provide our day-to-day needs. And God, we pray that you provide for us the bread of eternity today. And God, again, we thank you so much that we can come to you with those requests. God, we pray that you forgive us. And we know that we are sinners. We know we are in need of a Savior. We, are, we need grace. And God, we thank you that you provide that. And God, we pray that you help us to remember that how you have forgiven us. And we pray that you help us to see that and for ourselves to be forgiving. Help us to resist temptation, to grow in our trials. God, we pray that you guide us and you give us wisdom as we serve you and serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen.